Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is actor, musician, and activist Riz Ahmed. He's rapped under the name Riz MC and delivered breakthrough performances in films like The Road to Guantanamo, Nightcrawler, and Sound of Metal. And in 2021, he became the first Muslim to be nominated for a Best Actor Oscar, which is crazy given that Muslims make up almost a quarter of the population and the Oscars have been running for almost a century. Ahmed has used his platform to address how Hollywood represents minorities, or doesn't. I wanted to talk to him about challenging the status quo and about his latest film, Mogul Mowgli, which is perhaps his most personal to date. All right. I'm very excited to do this. I just, you know, I watched your movie again at, at four this morning with my son. It was, it was incredibly moving. Thank you. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's start off with your career in 2006. I, I'm going to take you back a little bit. Um, you released a song that I listened to last night for the first time in about 15 years. Have you looked at post 9-11 blues lately? I assume, I think it's wonderful. I, it really holds up, let's just say. Thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting because obviously musically, it wasn't a representation of where I was at even then. It was this deliberately kind of jingly, jokey children's kind of joke rap track. But, you know, kind of early Eminem influences, let's say, playing lots of characters, punchlines, all of that saying something with teeth, but wrapping it up in candy. And I guess, you know, I feel like I stand by everything that I had to say at that point. It was something that I said, because I felt like I had to, you know? I mean, for me, music has always been this place of catharsis, of therapy, this kind of dear diary zone where I need to kind of unpick a knot. I need to get something off my chest. I need to make sense of it for myself. And the way I do that is by imposing a structure of, of a verse, putting it into the meter of a rap song. It forces me to kind of wrangle it into some kind of shape. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, that was, oh, that was a long time ago, right? 15 years ago. Yeah. It's a very different you, I think, but maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I guess you'd hope that you're a little bit different 15 years on. But I mean, look, I came into the industry at a time when it was kind of peak war and terror. The war and terror just started, you know, it was 2005, Afghanistan, obviously that invasion had was underway. Iraq had just been invaded. And, you know, Guantanamo Bay was was uh, the hottest new startup being pushed by the American government. And it was a lot. It was intense. You know, it was something you couldn't ignore, even if you weren't, you know, a British Muslim. And if you were, if you did find yourself straddling the fault lines between this kind of new us and them categorization, then, you know, it, it was in your face. It was part of your day-to-day life. And so it was just a natural consequence that I started making music. There was a direct response to that. And that really all the auditions and film projects that I was being asked to audition for 
were also engaging with the war on terror. I just made sure that the music I was making was something that was pushing back against the dominant narratives and and the films that I auditioned for were the ones that, you know, had something meaningful to say and added some complexity and nuance to what was this kind of cartoonish binary. Right. Um, in 2016, you had sort of the breakout role in The Night Of, which I love, by the way. How did that show catalyze things for you? Because you were talking about getting these offers during this sort of war on terror period where a lot of actors weren't getting those kind of roles. This was sort of a different role. No, it's interesting you say that. Yes, it was a kind of breakout role for me in the States, but in the UK, I'd kind of had several kind of breakout moments. And it's interesting because you have these breakout moments, but in the UK where the main export culturally is kind of all white historical period dramas, or at least it was at that time, they don't know what to do with you. So kind of everyone knows you and, you know, you're getting love and stuff, but you're not really getting any jobs. And that's why a lot of kind of actors of color um, find themselves going over to the U.S. You know, it was interesting because the night of, it was just, there was just so many hurdles to getting it made. You know, HBO didn't pick it up. Then when they did, James Gandolfini tragically passed away, who was playing that John Turturro role. By the time that came out, it was like, we shot the pilot in 2012. It came out four years later. I was like, this has just been such a struggle making this. I'm just glad we're on the other side of it. Just didn't expect it to pop the way it did. But it struck a nerve. And I think in many ways it was interesting because, yes, the show did engage with some of those preconceptions around the dangerous Muslim, but it also added a layer of complexity and and really kind of played on those preconceptions to add some depth. I'm going to fast forward to 2021. You were nominated for an Academy Award for The Sound of Metal. Um, your character, drummer, loses his hearing. And you were nominated for an Academy Award for that role. You're the first Muslim nominated for Best Actor, which is inexplicable. Congratulations. But you said the moment was bittersweet. Can you talk a little bit about that role and why you noted it that way? Yeah, I mean, you know, you were talking about the kind of roles I was offered and we're talking about, you know, where the industry and culturally where we were at. 15 years ago, I always kind of see this as working in stages. So stage one is you've got the the stereotype, you know, the terrorist, the cab driver who doesn't speak very good English and that's all you're playing. And, and then stage two is of representation of minorities. And I think this extends to all minorities really is, okay, we're engaging with that hot topic issue. We're engaging with those negative preconceptions, but we're going to add some nuance. We're going to push back on it a little bit. And that may be true, whether it's The Night Of or films I've done like The Road to Guantanamo or Four Lions or Reluctant Fundamentalist. And then there's this kind of stage three, which is just playing a a guy, just a person. Like you're not primarily defined by your ethnicity. You're not shackled to that hot topic issue. Now, mind you, that kind of stage three, which I've referred to in the past as a kind of promised land, it doesn't necessarily need to be a place of like deracination where I'm just playing a guy named Bob or Dave. I should be able to play a character named Zaheer like I do in Mughal Mowgli. But nonetheless, it seemed to me that a role like Sound of Metal it is in that kind of promised land. It's a kind of role that maybe you wouldn't expect someone like me to play. And, and that really appealed to me. But really the thing that really pulled me to this role wasn't thoughts about representation or typecasting. It was just really... Darius Marder as a writer-director, his soul and his spirit was just so pure, just so so much about the work. And also because it was just terrifying. And like I said, I, I've kind of always tried and push myself to push myself. And I thought, can I learn the drums? And can I learn sign language? And can I play this guy who's so different? And I just thought, I just want someone to do something without a safety net. Because when you do some of those bigger movies, in a way, like, there's just a massive safety net because you're just filming endlessly and there's such a marketing machine 
behind it. and Like the the Bourne movie. Or, or, or Star, Star Wars, Wars or Venom, yeah. all these things. And, and I'm not knocking those movies. They teach you in a different way. They force you to have a kind of stamina and learn to be a team player. And they kind of force you to treat your, well, your craft more like a craft, you know. But you take away the safety net when you do something like uh, Mogul Mowgli or Sound of Metal because you invest so much in it. And you'll be lucky if people even see it. Right. When you talk about the promise line, when you play a character whose story is not intrinsically linked to some, whatever narrative or, or, as you said, any group of people. It's not a reaction. It's not a reaction against the narrative that someone else has framed. Right, exactly. Um, How far is Hollywood from that promise land? How difficult is it to not fall into that trope? I think it's a mixed picture, honestly. You know, the truth is, if you look at the progression of my career, it's not like I was just playing stereotypes, then I've started playing stuff that's pushing back, and now I'm playing, like, stuff that's nothing to do with that. It's always mixed, you know? I was playing roles like Shifty, where I'm just, like, a dude who happens to be Muslim and whatever, or Nightcrawler along the way, and Sound of Metal. But also, like, up until very recently, like you're saying, I am doing really culturally specific work like Mogul Mowgli. I would say that that's not shackled to your ethnicity. You know, that's those aren't ethnicity handcuffs that's an ethnicity bracelet you know that's something that I've picked out but I think it is a mixed picture and, and I guess a point I made recently you know we were talking about the bittersweet accolade of being a first Muslim nominated for best actor it is bittersweet because it's weird it's weird that when you've got 1.8 billion people quarter of the world's population in this incredibly global arena of the Oscars that, that I'm the first right it's weird And I guess what I'm feeling is that like exceptions prove the rules. So for me, I might be in a place now where I can dip in and out of that promised land. But I think for a lot of brown actors, minority actors, that isn't the case. I think it's a mixed picture still. Right. What's interesting is when, say, a Black Panther or a Wonder Woman comes out, they're like, oh, look, a woman's movie can make it, a Black movie can make it. When I'm like, of course they can make it. You just don't make them. Um, One of the things that's happened in Hollywood, um, streaming platforms are putting a lot more focus on this um, in greenlighting and casting decisions. How do you look at that, the changes with streamers? And does that change? Like Netflix certainly has a lot more, I guess, what you broadly call diversity. Yeah, I guess it's it's got to be a positive development. You know, ultimately, before we were in a kind of pre-sales model where it was about saying, hey, we've got this package and, you know, you've got a small number of gatekeepers that are socially, demographically very skewed in a certain direction and they're just using their gut on what they think them and their buddies would be into. And so that ends up with stuff like, you know, 12 Years a Slave poster in Italy, got Brad Pitt on there supposed to chew it to ledge you for and that kind of stuff. And it's hard to sell these movies, you know, is is the perception. Now you've got these global streaming platforms where it's about building up a global subscriber base, actually cultural hybridity, stories from the global majority. There's a premium on those, actually. That's where the growth lies. So I think that's got to be something positive. I think ultimately having those avenues and platforms available is a good thing. But what we need to do is to kind of create the, the pipeline to get the right kind of stories out there. And when I say the right kind of stories, I don't mean stuff that, you know, shows all brown or black people to be just like, you know, infallible and saintly. What I mean is, you know, ultimately we get to have an authorship of our own story. Well, you, along with several partners, recently unveiled a blueprint for Muslim inclusion. What kind of impact do you think you can have with that? Just the data, there's been data. I remember Gina Davis did data on women and it's very clear what's occurring. Um, What do you think happens? Is it just, if you can't count it, you can't deal with it? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't change anything unless you measure it. And, you know, it's really important to move beyond the anecdotal into kind of something statistical, particularly when, as you said, like, you know, a lot of this change is algorithmic, right? It's about measuring audiences, measuring where the growth lies, about 
also being able to measure the problem and show people where the obstacles are. And the obstacles are pretty clear with regards to Muslim, as I call it, misrepresentation, because in the incredible team down there at USC, Annenberg, you know, they did these studies. And for Muslims, these kind of top 200 films of the last couple of years, Muslims are about 1.6% of all speaking roles. Now that in itself is kind of crazy, but then you realize that three quarters of the portrayals of Muslims are either as victims of or perpetrators of violence. And we know the studies show that if your perception of a group of people is skewed to see them as a threat, then that has real world consequences. That actually has an impact on hate crime. That has an impact on legislation that's passed, discriminatory legislation. That has an impact on on the countries, frankly, that get invaded. You show a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of films where Muslims are just running around shouting Allah Akbar and killing you. And then you ask a group of young liberal leaning students whether they're up for trying to invade Iran. They're like, yes. You show them the opposite, excuse the other way. I mean, you know, I wish we weren't so predictable, but the input has a relationship to the output. So what do you hope to do with this blueprint? Do you take it to studio hands? Do you say, hey, pay attention? Yeah, we've had some really constructive conversations with these streamers, as, as you've mentioned, with other studios, with agencies. And we're, first of all, just making them aware that there's a problem. You know, you mentioned Black Panther, for example. It's an incredible moment for representation. And it was. We were just all on our feet and excited about that. But even films like Black Panther misrepresent Muslims in a way that is just not okay. There are no Muslims in that movie, apart from all of a sudden a bunch of Muslims turn up to kidnap schoolgirls as terrorists and they disappear again. Well, you know, you have a show like The Boys on Amazon, which is like you've got people of all races and ethnicities, even kind of half man, half fish, and there are no Muslims in that until they turn up to hijack a plane or become terrorist supervillains at the end. And and you realize that for a lot of people, this is just a blind spot. We've been living under this quite deliberate era of propaganda, these 20 years of these hugely committed military interventions in Muslim parts of the world, there's been quite a kind of tightly crafted um, narrative that we've all, you know, fallen victim to about Muslims. Um, It's the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up, which is astonishing, um, which I think much of that started then, uh, you know, at that moment. How do you think about where people have gotten? Because it doesn't seem like very far. Well, you know, actually, Cara, I'm sad to say it didn't start on 9-11. You know, there's a book called Real Bad Arabs by Jack Shaheen, which documents a hundred years of Muslim misrepresentation. Fair. That is fair. In Hollywood. I mean, Saeed was writing about it as well way before 9-11, the Orientalist tropes of the kind of the kind of the effeminate barbarian, basically, you know, the other. So it's actually kind of really, really super deep rooted. I mean, we could go back to the Crusades talking about different wars on terror and wars and clashes of civilizations and what narratives have been needed to legitimize that bloodshed. All right, you're right, the Crusades. All right, right, let's go back to there. I love the movies we had before that. But this, I think it really did, I guess, turbocharge in, in a lot of ways. Yes, and for our generation, it's certainly a shadow that we've had to kind of live under. You know, really, I just hope it's the end of an era. And I say that with no nostalgia. You know, it's been 20 years of this kind of collective madness of innumerable deaths and and just really kind of dangerously simplistic thinking that has just cost too much. So what's your reaction to what's unfolding in Afghanistan right now? I mean, horror, sadness, um, wanting to know how we can help. I mean, for people who feel a similar way, I'd, I'd urge them to kind of turn to Afghan voices and voices on the ground that are talking about what they need. There are some fantastic female-led kind of Afghan organizations 
both on the ground and in diaspora. When you think about where it's going, do you think that will change reactions, this idea of nation building and not understanding people's cultural references? Yeah, I guess it's, you know, you can't bomb people into freedom, you know. Uh, I, I hope we just kind of look back on this period as an aberration, as a moment of collective madness. Um, yeah, I, as I said, I hope it's the end of an era. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Brian Cranston, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Riz Ahmed after the break. This podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show... It's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories, when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So let's move on to Mowgli, which, as I said, I love. You co-wrote it and you star in it. Like The Sound of Nell, this is a musician whose career is suddenly derailed by an illness that just comes on. It's not hearing loss. It's an autoimmune disease. It's interesting, in the midst of pandemic, you've had two movies about people's lives being thrown off course. So what appealed to you about this premise? Because these two movies, they're very unsimilar, but they have a similar idea about lack of control, I guess. Yeah, and I guess they're both explorations of art and identity. And obviously, there's been a massive kind of interplay between those two things throughout my life and my career. You know, to some extent, my identity has fueled my art, but also my art has allowed me to reimagine and reshape and expand my sense of self and my identity, both for myself and others. And I guess, um, you know, there are limits to how much you can shape your identity or your life. And as you said, a lot of it's about surrendering control. And that's when the interesting art happens. But that can be kind of scary, you know. I mean, Look, the premise of this film, the concept of it, grew out of my friendship with my co-writer and director, Bassam Tariq. Now, he's also a working-class American-Pakistani, you know, with his hybrid identity, who is asked to direct anything but stories about himself or where he's from. And we just got to talking and thought, you know, we spend so much time trying to kind of, like, represent for, for our people and kind of kick the door down into rooms where we don't belong. How much time have we spent going home? Right. It, it is about home. 
Yeah. How much have we kind of, instead of thinking about representing for others or for our community or representing full stop, how much have we thought about just presenting ourselves? And and actually, we kind of wondered whether that's really the way to stretch culture and that's the way to really stretch ourselves. You know, if you become adept at wearing masks for other people, the scariest thing to do is to take that mask off. And really, this film is a kind of unmasking. It's very, very close to the lives of myself and Basam and people close to us. And it's very much a, uh, you know, it almost makes me cringe knowing that people are watching this film. It's just a super kind of personal exploration of of home and identity and really where you're from and what that means. When you, the characters, uh, the film's main character, Zed, is a London-born Pakistani rapper, Zahir, as you noted before, is his name. Is it autobiographical to either of you? Do you see it that way or not? I wouldn't call it autofiction, but I think certainly the seeds of a story like this have to come from our own life because there isn't another template to follow. So that is certainly a starting point. But then the kind of stuff that you're drawing from your own life or the lives of others starts to transform and mutate. And certainly Basam Tariq's style and his stated intention, which is to kind of try and develop a very unique visual language, an almost kind of brown visual intonation. Also the home movie look of it, the the various sort of hallucinatory areas of it. Yeah, it's shot through with a magical realism and it has a kind of genre hybridity that mirrors the characters in our experience. We have a hybrid identity. You know, magic is a part of our um, day-to-day lives, whether it's just about surviving when people don't want you to exist or whether it's about the spirituality that's infused into the way we see the world. I thought your mother was fantastic when she was doing whatever she was doing because it reminded me of my grandmother doing an evil eye thing when she was doing the evil eye. Yeah, the evil eye is real, man. The evil eye is something that a lot of people live it with. It is. Uh, my grandmother <laughs> used to put oil in water. She put a knife under my bed. It was sort of, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. What, what, where was, where was she from originally? Italy. It was a big deal. Right. Yes. So it's a very, it's Mediterranean. It was fascinating. She was amazing, that actress. So, but at the heart, it actually is a father-son story. Can you talk about that and that interaction with the father's name is Bashir in this, uh, Ali Khan was playing the role. Fantastic actor. Well, it's interesting because, man, I almost don't know where to start. You know, you were saying about this almost being like a pandemic movie, right? Like this unplanned health crisis throws your life off course forces you into a kind of lockdown to sit with yourself, sit with your demons and face yourself, reassess what really matters. Well, that's certainly the journey that that the Zed goes on here. You know, his illness is almost an identity crisis played out on a molecular level. You know, your body doesn't recognize you, so your body is attacking you. It's that self-hate or self-negation that you've had to kind of ritualize just to kind of navigate society where you're an outsider. And, um, you know, I think part of what the pandemic taught us is none of us are individuals, really. Individualism's a lie. We're all part of a larger whole. Our well-being is interdependent on each other. And we're not doing a very good job of that. Right, exactly. That's another conversation. But I think what Zed realizes in the film is, yeah, he's a part of this whole and he is Bashir's son, whether he likes it or not. And you better believe there's some stuff to like and some stuff to really not like. You know, the gift and the curse is the same thing. So he's kind of, I guess forced to go on this journey of accepting who he is by accepting the place he's from and his inheritance and his father. So it's very much, I guess, this idea of realizing that we aren't individuals, we're a link in a chain. Right. Um, This is the first film you've written or co-written, I should say. Why was this the story you wanted to tell? Well, I guess it'd be pretty hard to get someone else to write this. It was just super personal. And, uh, I wanted to save someone the experience of me trying to backseat write this film when I'm like, no, no, do it like this, do it like that. Certainly having an incredible writer like Basam to bounce off made it much less daunting. And you rewrote the script 
two months before shooting, correct? With him. Oh, I mean, we we didn't stop rewriting it. We were rewriting it on set. We were switching whole scenes around. The entire ending of the movie was improvised. Um, we realized we didn't have an ending to the movie. That's wonderful. Talk about that because you and your father are singing about a person in the story, Toba Tech Singh. Can you talk about the significance of that ending when you when you did that? Yeah, I guess Toba Tech Singh is this um, is a character in our movie. Uh, yeah, who's who's kind of in the in there a lot. Is interesting kind of mishmash of a Kawali singer called Aziz Mia and then a fictional character created by Sadat Hassan Manto, a short story writer who wrote a lot about the partition of India and Pakistan. And the story of Toba Tek Singh, which is this iconic short story, is about someone who's forced to make their home in no man's land, who doesn't belong to the east or west, to India or Pakistan, and digs their heels in in, in no man's land. And of course, that's kind of also Zed's fate and also Bashir's fate in a way. And yet, no man's land isn't necessarily a place that you have to be in on your own. You know, you can still connect with others. You, There's hope to maybe turn no man's land into a into a fertile place a place where you can build a home and and i guess yeah they they have this moment at the end this moment of catharsis i don't want to say too much for people that um haven't seen the film but yeah it was almost um we'd been on such a journey and the film deals with so many different themes and ideas trying to tie it all up in a neat bow just didn't make any sense at least in words and so we found ourselves just in this kind of quite primal moment of just uh well it's when they connected yeah. In addition to writing the script, you wrote the music in the film, and it's very beautiful. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the process, and then there's some lines I want to talk to you about. So talking about the music is an integral part of it. Yeah, so, you know, we're all a link in the chain, and that's something that Zed realizes, and that's something that I've realized as well. You know, I, I kind of looked almost exclusively to you know, the African-American tradition of hip-hop and uh, the British-Caribbean tradition of grime and garage and drum and bass. For my writing, until many years ago, I discovered Qawali singers like Aziz Mia and realized that, you know, the DNA of what I was doing also existed in that template of Qawali music, which is a kind of Pakistani gospel jazz, a Sufi kind of music. And so, yeah, we kind of wanted to chart this musical lineage from Qawali music to what Zed's doing as a rapper. And in a way, they're rapping about the same thing, this feeling of displacement and this feeling of trying to find some dignity in displacement and to own that. I actually didn't want to make Zed a rapper. I thought that's too close to me. But Bassam said, let's go there. Let's see what comes up. And yeah, a lot of the music in the film is actually my music from my last album, The Long Goodbye. Yes, which you had to release during the pandemic. So one of the big themes is where you're from and also what you gave up and what you gave to create a new society. You also have a back and forth with a, a Black rapper talking about what was taken from him. His father opened a Nigerian hair salon. What a hack. I guess he's not the only pucky trying to be Black. And you also talked a lot about what was taken from you. Um, assimilation is also an issue. Now, where you really from? The question seems simple, but the answer's kind of long. Can you talk a little bit about that, that idea of assimilation and what's taken from people, especially because it's expressed in the music most of all? Hmm. Well, assimilation, I think, is something that we shouldn't be aiming for. You know, I think that's asking a lot of people. It's asking them to give up their identity, um, their cultural heritage. Integration is about respecting difference, but allowing things to kind of coexist in parallel and enrich each other. It's about conversation, not about, you know, diluting or drowning one element out with another. But 
I, I don't know. I mean, if I could talk neatly and succinctly about identity and where I'm from and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, then I wouldn't have to make this film. But I guess, yeah, you know, family is, is, is a big part of what the film is about, but also, yeah, this idea of where you're from and look, I mean, family is something that your roots, I mean, that, you know, you grew from your roots and yet you also always want to escape that place. It's almost like getting a really, really overwhelming and slightly oppressive, but warm bear hug from like an uncle or a grandparent, you know, it's like, you need that hug. You want that hug. That's where the pain and the poetry is. That's the inspiration. That's the roots. But you need to get out of that hug too, because you're worried you're going to get sucked into that vortex. You know, the roots may anchor you, but they're always threatening to kind of pull you back down into the dirt. And I think that's a big part of Zed's journey is facing himself by facing where he's from and where his father is from. Well, if you could talk about that, where you are on the map is really important. But you're on a lot of places on the map. You talk about being in New York. You talk about being British. Obviously, the partition between India and Pakistan plays a huge role. Where do you find this character is on the map? And where are you on the map as an artist? I mean, I spent a lot of my life thinking about where I might belong and where home is. You know, even now, as I kind of think about where would I hope to start a family and put down roots and buy a house. There's there's no there's no real place where I feel like, okay, I can fully bring myself to this neighborhood or, you know, this country. You, you're always leaving part of yourself at the door if you're trying to fit into other people's boxes. And so I guess I think more about belonging as something that we can create rather than find. And really, I hope that that's something that I'm able to do with my work, with my creativity, that my home somehow is inside my lyrics, inside my films, inside the space that I hope that they're carving out. All right, Riz, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's a wonderful movie. Everybody should see it. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Caitlin O'Keefe, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Naeem Araza. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a recipe for warding off the evil eye, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. By the way, if you're wondering what's happening inside my head and what else I'm thinking about, soon you can get my new New York Times subscriber-only newsletter delivered straight to your inbox. If you're a Times subscriber and would like to learn more, join me for a virtual launch event. It's on September 14th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Maggie Haberman and Congresswoman Cori Bush will be there, too. You can RSVP at nytimes.com slash Kara Live. Thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.